Hi everyone, this is Michael with a disclaimer and an apology. We had some recording issues this week, which we didn't discover until I went to edit the episode. Normally, I would have scrapped the episode entirely, but I thought the conversation was good, and Nakia would be even angrier than she usually is to discover that she watched this movie for nothing. So I tried to salvage it as best I could, but the sound quality is still pretty rough. Hopefully, you'll be able to put up with it. If not, we'll be back next week with our sound issues resolved. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. From Chicago, this is The Unenthusiastic Critic, a podcast about destroying your marriage one movie at a time. everyone, and welcome to The Unenthusiastic Critic. I'm Michael McDonough. I write about film and television at unaffiliatedcritic.com. With me today, in this ever-changing world in which we live in, is my lovely wife, Nakia, also known as The Unenthusiastic Critic. Hello. Just over a year ago here on the podcast, I introduced Nakia to the original James Bond, the OG Bond, Sean Connery, as we watched 1964's Goldfinger. Now, I think she's ready for more. Roger Moore. That was <laughs> In his first turn as 007 in 1973's Live and Let Die. Nakia, let's not assume that everyone listened to the episode on Goldfinger, though they should definitely do that. <laughs> that is where we talked about the entire James Bond phenomenon, mm-hmm. all the various Bonds. But let's just refresh everyone's memory about your experience with this franchise and with watching Sean Connery in Goldfinger. Finger. So, TLDR, I hated it. <laughs> I did not enjoy it at all. I found it ludicrous, and I think the James Bond franchise is, you know, despite how good Daniel Craig looks in a suit, it is basically an imperialist wet dream, and I just don't find that entertaining. That, that's, that's not an appealing narrative for you. No, it is not. This agent of colonialism and yeah, it's not, it's not my imperialism. Not yeah, my you, you seem to have some issues with on that. On top of the sexism, on top of the... It's just, yeah, I'm not gonna... And you seem to have some issues with the, the plotting and some of the uh, set pieces. Because it was and... ludicrous. <laughs> I did not go back and listen to that episode because... Which I, I specifically asked you, you to did, do before we recorded this episode. I was not going to be doing that. Okay. Um, but I do recall one of his ingenious disguises being scuba diving with like a dead duck on his head or something. Brilliant camouflage. Emerging from the waters with a full tuxedo on. So there was that. This is this is how you be a super spy. That's how you get laughed at. Um, then there was Goldfinger himself with his just ridiculously complicated and ludicrous plan to steal gold, I guess. Uh, or, like, or like blow the gold up. Irradiate, irradiate the gold, gold. something it to the gold, yes. Dumb. But then he had like a floor plan that came up out of the floor <laughs> in addition to the projected image of the... Yeah, you, was, you took a lot of issue with, with Goldfinger's planning process. bunch of levels. <laughs> And you were you were somehow not irresistibly drawn and sexually aroused by Sean Connery. Is anyone? Apparently. I find that shocking. I mean, in the movie, you said every woman was, I believe the phrase was, dickmotized. Sure, sure. I by mean, him. Yes. Yeah. 
I wrote, okay, now that's vaguely coming back. Yeah. Uh-huh. Because there was the woman that hated him, and then he was just like all of a sudden irresistible. Yeah. To her. Mm-hmm. Inexplicably. So I did not find him <laughs> remotely attractive. Yeah. I just was not a fan of any part of it. <laughs> and I usually like an accent. Usually an accent can get me at least halfway there. Mm-hmm. But no, just. Nope. It's it's a mystery to me. Is it? Uh, a little bit. Sean Connery? People like Sean Connery. Sean Connery is a sex symbol. Oh, okay. To whom? To millions and millions of people. <laughs> Based on Bond? Uh, largely. Really? Yes. He had a duck on his head. <laughs> I think you're focusing way too much on the How duck. How could you not? He didn't wear the duck throughout the movie. How could you not focus on it, though? <laughs> Yeah, I don't see it. Okay, well, so maybe from your perspective, Mm -hmm. it's good that Sean Connery left this franchise. Sure, why not? Uh, He retired from the role after his fifth film, 1967's You Only Live Twice. And at that point, I think he was barely on speaking terms with the producers. They went on and filmed 1969's On Her Majesty's Secret Service with Australian actor George Lazenby in the role. That is actually one of the better movies. It's one of the least ridiculous Mm -hmm. movies. It's got Diana Rigg as the love interest, the great Queen of Thorns from Game of Thrones. Tell it was me. Yes, bitch, that's how you die. Uh, and in fact, Bond marries her at the end of that movie, okay. and then she dies. Spoiler alert. But Lazenby, though I'm sure he has his fans, was sort of charmless. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he was not, in my opinion, and I think in most people's opinion, a great James Bond. Okay. Um, the producers lured Connery back for the next film with a ridiculously large salary. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was 1971's Diamonds Are Forever. But that was it. He was done then. He came back in the 80s and made a non-canonical Bond film. Mm-hmm. But he was pretty much done with this franchise. A search was conducted for the new Bond, and English actor Roger Moore was selected. At 45, he was the oldest actor to take the role. He was actually five years older than Connery was when he finished his run. Mm-hmm. And he was, I think the producer, Lazenby was an unknown, and they the producers decided they didn't want to build somebody into a star. Roger Moore was fairly well known. He had a big television career. Uh, he was on the TV show Maverick. The Western, uh, with James Garner playing Brett Maverick's cousin, Bo Maverick, uh, and sort of took over that role after Garner cut back his involvement. And then his real fame came on The Saint from 1962 to 1969, playing Simon Templar, who was a suave Robin Hood-style criminal who stole from other criminals and gave to the poor kind of thing. Um, he was a con man, very sophisticated. It was it was good training for James Bond. Mm-hmm. Knowing your penchant for terrible, terrible movies, you might have seen the Val Kilmer version of The Saint from the 90s. I have not. Okay. It seems <laughs> like something assume. you would have seen. I have seen all the terrible films. <laughs> I did see the one where he was blind. <laughs> that was a really bad film, it too. Was awful. But not... That Mira Sorvino? Uh, somebody like that, yes. Like that. Yeah, that, that yeah. was awful. Yeah, not really relevant to our conversation, well, but... you mentioned bad Val Kilmer <laughs> films, and I think that's probably the worst Val Kilmer film that I've seen. Okay, so Roger Moore played Bond from 1973 to 1985, making six films in total. And he was, as I said last time, though I, like everyone, will claim Sean Connery as the definitive Bond. Yeah, the duck on his head. Really, Roger Moore was my James Bond from my childhood. Mm-hmm. I mean, those were, those were my years, the 70s and the 80s. 
though his films got increasingly ridiculous and tongue-in-cheek. There is a moment in 1979's Moonraker that sort of perfectly typifies the worst of the Moore era. I think even by fans of this franchise, which I'm a casual fan at best, it is probably considered one of the worst moments in all of cinema. Okay. Um, he is driving a gondola down the canals one drive a gondola? of Venice, piloting a gondola, whatever. <laughs> but this is a Q-tricked-out gondola. Okay. And at one point, the chase moves to land, so the gondola... He presses a button, the gondola acquires wheels or turns into a fucking hovercraft or something and goes up onto the plaza in the middle of Venice and is running through the crowd with the tables and the cafe chairs and everything and going, you know, now driving on the streets of Venice. Um, And we get this series of reaction shots from the crowd. Everybody turning, oh my god, what's happening? And we get a reaction shot, this is the moment, from a fucking pigeon who literally does a double take. Nice. As the gondola goes by. Nice. A really badly edited, like they just, you know, use the same frames of the film to make the pigeon turn his head twice to follow the gondola. It's awful. I would argue. Better use of a damn bird. <laughs> than putting it, than putting it on, on your head. head. So, okay, maybe let that go. I can't. <laughs> <laughs> so Roger Moore departed this role after 1985's A View to a Kill, which is another terrible movie. Uh, you might like that one, though. That's uh, Christopher Walken as the villain and Grace Jones. Yes, Grace. Mm-hmm. All right. And then, of course, leading to two films with Timothy Dalton in the late 80s, and then four films with Pierce Brosnan in the 90s and the early aughts. None of which, you will be happy to hear, I feel obligated to make you watch. I really shouldn't be watching this one. In fact, I will I will say here and now, I think this is probably the last Bond film that, that I would argue you need to see. Okay. But in my mind, at least, there was never any question that we would watch this movie. One, because as I said, I think, you know, you should at least experience the the other bond of my childhood. Mm-hmm. But mostly for this reason, uh, which I will allow Jacqueline Ristola at In Media Res to describe. She says, Bond films are always made as a reaction to its previous incarnation. In this case, Live and Let Die is a direct reaction to the bombast and spectacle of Diamonds Are Forever. Live and Let Die represents an attempt to make a grittier and hipper take on the franchise. How do they do this? By dropping Bond into a black exploitation picture. Okay. <laughs> I now I know I don't want to see this. <laughs> I, there's nothing here for me. There's one. There's thing. there's going to be so much for us to talk about in this movie. And I don't want. This is a couple of years after Shaft. This is the height of the black exploitation era, and the producers of Bond, this franchise about imperialism and colonialism, and as you argued last time, I think actual white supremacy. Yes. Decided. Okay, let's make a black exploitation picture with a white Bond. With James Bond. Yes. Sure. So I feel like there's going to be stuff for us to talk about. I have to say, I am not 100% expecting you to love this movie. You know, you might. Sometimes you surprise me. 
But I do somehow just think there's there's going to be stuff for us to talk about. Did somebody call him Ofe? Almost certainly. Okay. And I have not seen this movie Correct. since the seventies. I don't remember it, but I know I know what happens in it. And I have read. I'm going to come back to that article by Ristola. She has a lot of good things to say about this movie. There's some other there's some other takes on it. I think we'll come back to. But really, I think we should just get your unprejudiced take first. Mm-hmm. I can give that to you now. Okay, let's let's hear it. It's and terrible. we'll see if you're wrong. It's terrible. We'll see if it changes after you actually watch the movie in question. And an instrument of racism. <laughs> <laughs> Why can't it be a major blow for representation and absolutely expansion of, you know? Because I do not trust the people behind the James Bond franchise <laughs> to engage in responsible sort of representation of black folks, particularly if they're doing black exploitation. No, we're not. No. <laughs> They don't have the range, is what I'm saying. I, I think you should try to go into this with an open mind. I absolutely am not. <laughs> okay, I don't, I don't, like I said, we talked about the whole James Bond thing last time. I don't have a lot more to talk about before we watch this movie. I think we should probably just, just go watch it. You, you have any final thoughts before we watch Live and Let Die? I've said it all. <laughs> Roger Moore is James Bond 007 in Ian Fleming's Live and Let Die. My name's Bond. James Bond. Names is for tombstones, baby. Waste him now. James Bond is back, and wherever he drops in, it can mean only one thing. Trouble! This is the Bond adventure with more excitement, more action more danger, and more. Much more. Roger Moore as James Bond, 007. Oh, 007 is on a worldwide manhunt. The body count is going up. Bond stops to visit. He leaves his mark on everything. They'll kill you. They will kill us. Love was lesson number two. Togetherness. Is there time before we leave for lesson number three? Absolutely. And we're back. During the break, Nikki and I watched Live and Let Die. And, as predicted, she absolutely loved it. That is an absolute lie. <laughs> you, you didn't love it? No. You just, li- you just liked it? You know that I hated it. Hate is such a strong word. It is an accurate word. Uh, so does this make you feel better, worse, or the same about the Sean Connery, James Bond, and Goldfinger? Um, I mean, this is probably worse than Goldfinger, but... So you liked Goldfinger better? No. I would not use the word like. I would say they're both (laughs) trash. (laughs) But Live and Let Die is sort of hot garbage versus just trash, trash, so... Goldfinger is 
tepid sure. garbage, right. cool dry garbage. Garbage is like, okay, it's not that bad, but live and let die is wet garbage, <laughs> 90 degree weather in New York City. Just, like a closed apartment just, yeah, that hasn't been opened exactly. for a week. And, so okay. It's not a matter of what is good, it's just uh, level of <clears throat> trash. Okay. That seems a little harsh. I don't think so. Uh, so let's, let's start off. I know there's more important things to get to, but let's start off just talking about your reaction to Roger Moore in his first outing as 007. Yeah, I felt no kind of way about him at all. Um, <laughs> it's not much of a performance, no, and mean, he, <laughs> by his I'm own admission, was yeah. not much of an actor. Yeah, I'm, yeah. And really, he just, he does the suave thing, mm-hmm. and he does the, you know, stupid lines, and... This this is where I do think, whatever you think about him, I think Sean Connery wins this fight mm-hmm. walking away. Because I think he makes an impression yes. that I don't think Roger Moore makes. I agree. Um, Roger Moore, yeah, I'm, I'm actually struggling thinking of anything about his performance that I would think was of <laughs> note. Um, yeah, he, he's kind of um, a little bit of a blank slate for mm-hmm. me. I think that was the reaction a lot of people had. Uh, Roger Ebert, in his review of this film when it came out, and I would just say, in reading all of the reviews, I was amazed how few of them mentioned race. Really? Uh, Yeah, and Roger just barely mentioned it somewhere in the review. He was like, oh, and by the way, all the villains are black or something. Uh He just threw that in. But since I know that's a topic we're going to get to. So here's what he had to say about Roger Moore. He said, Live and Let Die is the ninth James Bond picture and not exactly the best. It has all the necessary girls, gimmicks, subterranean control rooms, uniformed goons, and magic wristwatches it can hold, but it doesn't have the wit and it doesn't have the style of the best Bond movies. Moore has the superficial attributes for the job, the urbanity, the quizzically raised eyebrow, the calm under fire, and in bed. But Connery was always able to invest the role with a certain humor, a sense of its ridiculousness. Moore has been supplied with a lot of double entendres and double takes, but he doesn't seem to get the joke. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't think he takes himself seriously. I just don't think he has much in the way of charisma or sort of presence mm-hmm. on film. Mm-hmm. Um, but I actually, I think he gets the joke. I didn't, I didn't feel that he doesn't. Yeah, I'm not sure I would put it that way. Yeah. I mean, he, he definitely gets the joke. Yeah. And as an actor, you can tell that he doesn't take it very seriously. Right. I think his approach to it, though, was, okay, I'm just going to play this straight and just... Mm-hmm. He does seem to be somewhat just going through the motions. Yeah. But I wanted to find a defender of Roger Moore. They are out there. There are a lot of articles, especially after he died in 2017, people saying Roger Moore was the best James Bond. I found most of these articles unpersuasive. Uh, But here's one. This is from film critic A.O. Scott at the New York Times. After Moore died, he wrote an article entitled, Roger Moore was the best Bond because he was the Gen X Bond. And Scott says, I grew up being reminded at every turn that Sean Connery was the better Bond. The real Bond. As if such a ridiculous Anglo-American Cold War confection could stake any kind of claim to authenticity. The Connery consensus seems like a part of a larger baby boomer conspiracy to bully people my age into believing that everything we were too young to have experienced firsthand was cooler than what was right in front of our eyes. Mr. Connery brought a rough sexual swagger to Ian Fleming's fantasy of British masculine competence. Later, Daniel Craig would bring pouty, wounded prettiness. His 21st century 007 is at pains to seem sensitive, ambivalent, woke. But Mr. Moore's blithe efficiency has always struck me as a truer expression of the Bond ideal. He was, by his own admission, an actor of modest gifts, which made him perfect for the role, at least as far as I'm concerned. 
My James Bond is not macho compensation for lost imperial power like Mr. Connery or an anxious avatar of globalization like Mr. Craig. He is a cartoon superhero in evening wear, a man whose mission is to embody and therefore to transcend a second-hand, second-rate age to be cool and clever in a world determined to be as lame and dumb as possible. Okay. <laughs> I didn't get any of that, but all right. <laughs> I mean, I do see what he's saying. He's saying that we don't want Bond to be authentic. We don't want him to be realistic. We don't want him to represent anything. We just want him to be a cartoon superhero who looks good in a suit Mm -hmm. and sleeps with all the pretty women. And I do think that's what the Moore era was about. It was much more cartoonish. It was much more, I mean, towards the end, it got towards more sci-fi, like Moonraker, he actually goes to space. There's all of this stuff. It's it's so far away from anything related to politics. It's just pure cotton candy absurdity, mm-hmm. which is why people shit on that era. <laughs> but I will say that, yes, when I, I am also Gen X, and when I was a kid, I thought it was pretty cool. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think that there is value in just saying, like, but it's almost sort of akin to the conversation I think folks have around modern day um, comic book films. It's like, why does it have to be so serious and dour like why can't it be right rock every time because it like they are ridiculous and right. it is a ridiculous universe and and i'm that way i'm like them be fun things there, there is a limit to what you can say seriously mm-hmm. with that ridiculous formula mm-hmm. superheroes are a very limited genre right. to me right. you cannot make a serious important art film with superheroes there's at some point you hit a wall of why are you even trying yeah. to say something important with this i mean I, well i think you can in that superheroes right become these avatars for otherness in society and so you can have right you can have a narrative that deals with that on you know, on its merit, that sort of argument on its merits. I think it's it's hard, it's probably harder for me to allow a character like James Bond to be quote unquote fun, knowing the legacy and the roots of that story. Right. Um. So, oh, it's fun. He's just bopping around, but he's still bopping around in the name of colonialism. <laughs> right. And so I'm not gonna. Be okay. Well, fun. let's let's get to that then. Uh, what was your uh, reaction to this movie from that front? Um, this was some racist bullshit. <laughs> that, yeah, I don't, there's really no other way to say it. I, it, uh, <laughs> <laughs> this idea of quote unquote dropping James Bond into a black exploitation film is like that one, you can't do that because then it is inherently not a black exploitation film. Right. Black exploitation films were about black heroes and anti heroes being the center of their own stories. Exactly. And so once you put James Bond into that space, it's no longer about <laughs> black heroes and anti heroes uh, and the agency of their own stories um, and the, that sort of empowerment that comes with that. So then it just becomes James Bond, you know, is like doing some weird sort of cultural field trip through Harlem and the Caribbean and New Orleans. Yeah. They've taken just sort of all of the sort of stereotypical tropes from black exploitation and from really backwards ideas around voodoo and obia and various religions of the diaspora and let him sort of play in it with no respect to those communities and, and, and yeah. those sort of so it's just it was really you... bothersome <laughs> to me actually okay I, I said I said in the first segment we were going to revisit that piece very good piece by Jacqueline Ristola in, in Media Res mm-hmm. um, I will link to it in the show notes but we almost don't have to revisit it now because you just laid it out yeah exactly as I mean, she it's did pretty clear 
Uh, she says, in seeking to reaffirm the current and gritty relevance of James Bond, the filmmakers tried to film the unfilmable, meaning the book was unfilmable. Okay. Hoping a exploitation twist would help tamper the racist material. The result is the worst entry in the franchise. It is a film that does not empower African Americans, but rather regurgitates exploitation tropes without their original empowering subtext. The film instead reduces the tropes to their most racist form, parading them as a form of cultural tourism Bond undergoes as he traverses the seedy lands of exploitation. Pimps, drugs, voodoo, Bond encounters them all. What results is racist exploitation of exploitation iconography, creating an onslaught of reductionist racist imagery. Yep. Pretty much, you you are on the same page that, with that. No, I don't know how anyone would walk away with any other understanding of that film. So, <laughs> and I also found a good article. This was a more scholarly piece. Uh, this is in a book called Shocking Cinema of the 70s. There was an essay by Christopher S. Norton and Garrett Chaffin Quiré called Jonesing James Bond, Co-opting Co-optation and the Rules of Racial Subordination. Wow. Yeah. And I won't I won't get too far into this, but they they sort of lay out talking about how black exploitation fists or some black exploitation films at least were themselves co-opting the tropes of James Bond movies. Mm-hmm. So like Cleopatra Jones was, you know, sort of playing with those Bond archetypes in this empowering way. And then that what this film is basically doing is co-opting that back (laughs) and co-opting blaxploitation tropes and putting them in service of a white hero who is then killing black people, Mm -hmm. sleeping with black women. Sleeping with a black woman. Just completely reversing the the tropes of blaxploitation. Um... It is clear that Live and Let Die is a kind of white fantasy filled with xenophobic designs, overt racism and sexism, and stereotypical representations of other cultures. This fantasy involves killing black men, sleeping with black women, and restoring whiteness to a position of power on screen. They say the film can be seen as an effort to stabilize white hegemony in the face of global nationalist tensions and rising black militancy. And none of that really worked for you. (laughs) Well, no. Um, It's... Right? It's this idea that... So you have Yafet Koto, who is just light years better than this film. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Who is somehow able to, like, imbue this character with some sort of dignity and respect. Mm -hmm. But so he is playing a character who has sort of two lives. He's playing... In one, he is uh, a respected diplomat to this sort of Caribbean nation. Right. San Monique. San Monique. And in his, you know, true life, I guess, he is Mr. Big, though they never really, like, they keep talking about this Mr. Big and they never actually just call him Mr. Big, but, so he's Mr. Big, this sort of, um, Jive-talking, Harlem, heroin dealer. heroin dealer who was, you know, deeply involved in the occult, and... Well, wait, because I will, I will push back on that, because I think Kananga is the real identity. Mr. Mr. Big is... The fake... This costume front, right. he wears. That's true, that's true. Which, okay, so that's To play into... Right. Right. So that could be an interesting space of, like, presenting what he knows white people think that sort of person will look like and how that <laughs> right. person will behave. I don't think the movie is actually smart enough to be doing that. No, I don't either. Okay. So, 
<laughs> but so you have so right. We have Kananga Kananga as sort of diplomat, ambassador, or whatever sort of his role is supposed to be. But this film sort of undercuts this idea that a black person, a black man, could be authentically and honestly involved in the political system without there being some sort of ulterior motive or some sort of sinister dealings underneath it. <laughs> right. That the only reason that person would be in that space was in, in order to sort of manipulate these sort of levers of power to... Well, I mean, it, it was not going to be a film about diplomacy no, at the not. UN. of course not. But right. when we're talking about sort of this undermining of black agency, this undermining of black empowerment, like you start out with this character who is... It's sort of manipulating these sort of authentic spaces of power in an effort to gain power in the sort of black market. Right. 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 His ultimate plan, as we find out, is to flood the world with free with heroin, free heroin and get the entire to world into the market the and push all the other drug dealers out of the market so that he can then corner the market and, right. and sell his heroin exclusively, which is, is very involved. Um, <laughs> so, so that's. The one. And then somehow Kananga slash Mr. Big has every black person on the planet that we see, <laughs> save for two. Literally, they are on his all path. on the payroll. They are all spying for him. They are all reporting back to him. It's kind of amazing. The most random people James Bond bumps into cab anywhere in the world. Drivers. And then the same cab driver that picks you up in New York picks you up in New Orleans. New Orleans. <laughs> Because he's on the payroll. And so it re- He's not only on the payroll, they flew him down. <laughs> this is like, They're like, can we get we someone else to drive the cab? No, we, we need, need our cab driver. Get him down um, here. So then you're reinforcing these ideas of like this conspiracy of like all black people are conspiring against yeah, white people. You all know each other. We, we know that. We give a shit about you. <laughs> We'd actually rather you stay out of our way. <laughs> we are not at all thinking about you most of the time. So this idea that like it was every black person <laughs> yeah. was involved in this man's scheme yeah. and it was basically like this game of telephone at the beginning of the honkies coming here come the honkies <laughs> it was like 18 honkies it's like uh, so again it's just like we don't behave that way that's just not the world but okay so again it's just reinforcing this idea of the fear of this black cabal that's yeah. just you know <laughs> conspiring against white people all the time and it's just that's just not the case uh, I did have a quote here before we get too far away from it. You said Yafit Koto was too good for this film. Yafit Koto thought so too. <laughs> As he should. He said there were so many problems with that script. He said I had to dig deep in my soul and brain and mm-hmm. come up with a level of reality that would offset the sea of stereotype crap that screenwriter Tom Mankiewicz wrote that had nothing to do with the black experience or culture. Mm-hmm. He said the entire experience was not as rewarding as I wanted it to be. Yeah. <laughs> he also has said that he was not allowed to do any press for the movie or to attend the premiere. Really? He said the producers told him they were afraid of the public's reaction to the villain being black. Uh, now, you also may remember, I'm not saying he's wrong about any of that, but you also may remember from our discussion of Midnight Run that Yafet Koto has also said he has repeatedly been abducted by aliens throughout his life. Mm-hmm. So, grain of salt on everything, Yafet says. I believe that more than I believe that everyone, every black person in Harlem <laughs> is all involved in the same drug ring and is just looking for this one white dude. So, bring on the aliens. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. Sure. Okay. Where, w- where would you like to go with this, sweetie? I, I don't want to go anywhere with this. <laughs> 
Okay, I, I do think I do think we need to go through this movie a, a little bit, at least talk about some of the uh, you know more amazing and thrilling set pieces and things. Are there amazing <laughs> and thrilling set pieces? So we start out with this this pre-credit sequence. This is one of the only pre-credit sequences in the Bond films that do not feature Bond. Usually it's him doing something exciting. Mm -hmm. This is just a bunch of agents all over the world getting bumped off. So, you know, one agent is getting killed in this voodoo ritual on San Monique by being bitten by a snake. Mm -hmm. Some guy's killed at the UN somehow when they plug into his microphone and blast. I don't even, I don't know exactly how that was supposed to have worked. Mm -hmm. And then the one I did want to talk about for a moment is the New Orleans funeral Mm -hmm. service Mm -hmm. where they stage this big traditional New Orleans marching funeral for the sole purpose (laughs) of the the agent is standing there on the sidewalk and somebody walks up to him and the agent says whose funeral is it and the guy says yours and shanks him him. (laughs) the funeral procession swings over lowers the coffin over him which somehow just like snatches his him up they carry him off and then the funeral turns into a party a joyous second line (laughs) yes Mm -hmm. there have to be easier ways to shank a guy you know I would imagine (laughs) That takes a lot of coordination. A lot of act. Look, they had a a grieving mother in the crowd. Yeah, crying, and it was just again just a lot of people on the payroll. A lot of people to just. And it seems to me you would be then you're drawing attention to this murder more than if you had just like walked up to this guy and stuck a gun in his ear and said, "Hey, you're coming with me," and shot him in an alleyway. But you know, like it's very elaborate. Black people have style. We're going to do something. And then later in the film, we see the exact same funeral yeah, procession no, a, with the exact same grieving mother that's a do it again. tactic there. That's their, like, okay, pull the, pull the parade. <laughs> Cue the funeral troop. Parade him, you know? <laughs> and it's quite amazing to watch. I would really like to inspect the casket because I don't understand the, the physics of that at all because, they, like you said, they lower it over him and then all of a sudden the body... And then instantly the pick him up and the body is somehow inside it. Yeah, no, it's a good trick. Trap door situation. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, it's definitely, it is, it's stylish. Okay, and then we get to the uh, the actual credit sequence mm-hmm. over Live and Let Die by Paul McCartney and Wings, mm-hmm. which is a good song. I like that song. It is a good song. Uh, but I know you wanted to talk about the credits sequence a little bit. Well, because that's when I knew I was going to hate this film pretty much from the start. <laughs> because the opening credits were, I mean, it's similar to at least what I've seen of other Bond films and that sort of play on a woman's silhouette. Right, right. Be the sort of aesthetic across the French. But this time we had black women mm-hmm. and they were very clearly naked yep. in the way that in past opening credits, the white women were sort of shadowed and it was very sort of quote unquote tasteful nudity and you, you knew they were naked, but you couldn't really see that they were naked. Um, yeah, that very first image is very you, clearly you just naked. You yeah, see nipple areola. Like yeah. It's, it's very clear that that is a naked black woman um, and she has these sort of tribal bead necklace thing on. Is that... I I thought they were chains. No, I think they're necklaces. No, they no. They but, weren't. Yeah, no, they weren't slave chains. Oh God, no, because we would have turned that off immediately. I don't think that they. Were okay, slave I'm chains. not sure about that. We oh, may have God. to go back and check that. 
I hope not. Jesus. Um, no, I think that they were like tribal beads. Okay, sort of we'll give them the benefit uh, of the doubt here. And then there were a couple of other black women. One of them was sort of had this full body, again, quote unquote, tribal body paint stuff on. And she had a gun. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, then, the silhouette women we know are black because they have gigantic afros. Yeah. And again, they are much more clearly naked than mm-hmm. what has typically been shown. And the woman that we see full frontal on, she gets really bug-eyed at one point during the credits and so it's just playing into this whole idea of sort of and then explodes into a skull and then it becomes a skull and it's just weird menstruality imagery and it's just it is problematic from the start <laughs> um, but then we shift to a much more sort of ethereal representation of a woman yeah. and now we're at a white woman who's yeah. just like again back in deep shadow silhouetted and she's sort of just fluid and you know sort of swaying back and forth and it's a very sort of beautiful image juxtaposed against what has been these very sort of aggressive, really sort of violent and confrontational images of black women. Mm-hmm. And then I thought it was interesting that out of this sequence, we then fade into the the actual movie with this very pale white woman mm-hmm. sleeping on very pale white James Bond's mm-hmm. chest yep. in his apartment. I don't know that we need to talk about that sequence very much. That's no. mostly exposition. Yeah. M shows up and tells him the whole thing with the Kananga, and he's got to investigate the dead agents. And the plot, I could care less, really, about the plot here. Mm-hmm. This We are introduced, however, to the chief gadget of the movie. Q is not in this movie, but he did give James Bond a, a nice watch. Yes, it is a watch with a very powerful <laughs> magnet embedded in it. Yeah, that's... The watch is a problem. <laughs> why, why is the watch a problem? Because the watch seems to be the only magnet in the world <laughs> that can be sort of singularly focused on one object. So when he activates it, it doesn't attract all metal. It just attracts the one, the one tiny little thing that, that he, wants he wants to. Wants. Yeah, it's it's unidirectional. It's uh, so focused like a laser. This magnet on whatever he points it amazing. at. Amazing. Um, <laughs> And frustrating on a narrative standpoint for me. He can use it to unzip a woman's dress. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And then, and then we have the first of the just endless and totally unnecessary puns. Mm-hmm. Sheer magnetism, darling. Yeah, it's clever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then we are off to New York. Right to investigate the murder at the UN. Yeah. He's picked up by the sanctioned driver from the CIA or whatever. Yeah. And then what they refer to <laughs> as a white pimp mobile. See, I when we were watching this, I'm ta- I'm making notes, and when it first showed up, I wrote pimp mobile. Because you're racist. Well, no, because that's what it was so clearly supposed to be, right? <laughs> or it could have just been a fucking Cadillac. It's a big white Cadillac, <laughs> but it was obvious that they wanted that to look like a stereotypical pimp mobile. And then two minutes later, they're calling it that yes, in the script. They're putting out, like, in, you know, an APB for a white pimp mobile. Yes. yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which is apparently tricked out with side mirror darts. Sure. So the pimp mobile driven by one of Kananga's henchmen pulls up alongside Bond's car and shoots a dart into the driver's head and so we have our first sort of action scene where Bond is trying to steer the car from the back seat. Yeah. Um, we also have the first sort of why the fuck didn't you just kill James Bond moment. Yeah. Like, why didn't you just shoot the guy you wanted to kill? That's going to come up a lot in this movie. It does. Well, and I... So we find out later that that henchman's name is Whisper. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> you you had a you had a problem with Whisper. Because I don't understand Whisper's purpose. <laughs> Whisper is uh He's a he's a quiet, heavy set man. Yes. So one. <laughs> you look at him and you go, Okay, maybe he's strong. Like he's a he's a good sized gentleman. I was like, Okay, well maybe he's around because he has good strength. Yeah, no, he the, doesn't really the, the one time he has to like drag Bond's body to like a different room, he is struggling. <laughs> So it's clear he's not there for his strength. Okay. And then we realize why his name is Whisper <laughs> is because he doesn't speak above a whisper ever. And that becomes very important towards the end of the film. <laughs> when he sees that Bond has freed himself from his, he was tied up and so he frees himself. And Whisper goes, look out. <laughs> he goes, what? I don't think we could hear he that. Goes, no one can hear you. <laughs> so you're 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 leading to the death of all of us here because you can't speak above a whisper. I don't understand why whispers on the squad. You don't you don't understand why he's I, on the payroll. I don't I don't, I don't get it because you would want someone in your crew that can say, "Hey, look out!" Whisper can't do that. Whisper says, "Look out!" <laughs> you know, maybe he's like. Kananga's brother-in-law or something. Maybe it's kind of a family thing. That's right. Then you freight him and you send him to Vegas and be like, you know what? Just go chill. Just go take care of this unimportant stuff. Just just go over there where because like this. No, he wouldn't be good in Vegas either because he tried to like play as a waiter and deliver champagne to Bond. Mm -hmm. He's like, I have champagne in glasses. And Bond is like, what? Do you want any help in your champagne? It's like, as a screenwriter, as you're writing that, why? <laughs> why is this a character? I got champagne with two glasses. Because you like the name Whisper, maybe? No, I don't know. He doesn't. Then let him be like silent ninja sort of shit. Like, oh, he moves in silence and you, he can kill people. But that's no, not. He's a fat, ineffective waiter. He just, you just can't hear him. <laughs> and I don't understand the value of that. I can't. I can't help you with that. <laughs> really, don't understand. Uh, okay, so the driver's dead, and Bond has to steer the car from the back seat, and that's fine. If whatever, he mm-hmm. crashes the car and gets out of the car, mm-hmm. hooks up with Felix Leiter, the CIA agent, whose really only purpose is exposition guy, and to come in after Bond has gotten in a lot of trouble and kind of clean it up. Clean it up. Mm-hmm. And somewhere in here, we first meet Kananga and Solitaire. Yes. This is Jane Seymour, Dr. Quinn, medicine woman in her mm-hmm. first role, I believe. Her first major role. White woman in a den of Negroes. Uh, uh-huh. Yep. Yeah. It's a problem. It's a serious problem. <laughs> What's the problem? You know what the problem is. Yes, but I'd like you to articulate it for our listeners. Because, again, we're playing on, you know, white paranoia about this idea that we're here to take all your white women. And but we're not. Nope. Why couldn't she have been a black woman? And she's supposed to be this sort of Obia high priestess woman. That should be then a Caribbean woman or a woman of the African diaspora. Yeah. British Jane <laughs> Seymour. So, again, it's a erasure and again it's colonialism of what is historically a black identity so no no just just no just to no solitaire. To all of that yeah okay but this is our first time that we see the sort of double identity thing so we see through felix who is 
surveilling Kananga. Right, the CIA has Kananga's office bugged. Right, so we see them walk in as Kananga and his sort of attache, and so they're all suited up and look very respectable, and then they get into their secret little office area, and they bring out the pimp clothes, <laughs> and change into some really just... We, we had to put on our Harlem clothes. ...garish suits, and she puts on her host role attire, and... Um, that's when we realize that, oh, he is not a diplomat. No, no, something else is going on here. Yeah. they Yeah, so they, they sneak out through a hidden door in the office. They get into yet another big, gigantic Cadillac, and they head on to Harlem. Mm-hmm. And this is where James Bond, attempting to follow them, hops in just a random cab that just happened to be passing by. Yep. And, and says is driven by someone who is obviously working for Kananga. Yeah. Says for twenty dollars I'll take you to the Ku Klux Klan cookout. <laughs> so again, just no, wouldn't wouldn't say that. <laughs> and that's when we realize that all of Harlem is wired yeah. to look out for white people. People are calling in saying you got a hunky on your tail. And it's a key, I believe that someone calls him a cue ball at one point. <laughs> um, he does, to be fair, stand out a little bit mm-hmm. in this environment. Mm-hmm. He's not really the kind of secret agent that like blends mm-hmm. places. Yeah. Which I've always had a problem with, like the fact that he just uses his real name. He's really proud of his name, and he likes to tell everyone his real name. And it's like you're you're a secret agent. There's, the secret part of secret agent seems to be a little lost on James Bond. Mm-hmm. See, I just don't. Again, I'm not super surprised by the audacity that he has in walking into Harlem without any thought of that he may be standing out because the presumption of whiteness is that you belong everywhere. Mm-hmm. So. Why would anyone question your presence? And again, the only reason folks of color would care is if we think you're about to gentrify. Like, then it's like, oh, shit. <laughs> so a white person there goes in the neighborhood, the neighborhood. Like, eh, mm-hmm. what's happening? So otherwise, we, we don't care. That first Starbucks goes up. Right. It's like, why, yeah. why is this white person biking in my neighborhood? <laughs> That's odd. Okay, so yeah, he follows them into uh, this this bar, restaurant. Filet of soul. Filet of soul. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And this, like every, like it's all wired with secret rooms and secret trap passages and trapdoors and, like, and amazing. This operation, operation they have. you wonder Stop. why he even bothers to try to, you know, get more power and money because he he seems to have everything pretty much, yeah. you know, that he needs. So this is where Bond and Solitaire meet. Solitaire is doing the tarot cards, which is her thing. Yeah. She has magical powers of precognition. Mm-hmm. You just roll your eyes again, into like, the back of your this, head. Like, cartoonization of OB. Like, that's just not... No, no. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> and we meet the henchman with the mechanical arm, uh, whose name is Teehee, apparently. Because he laughs a little bit through the movie. Yeah. Uh, it's still not a good name. Actually, like, Whisper is a better name than Teehee. I actually like Teehee. You like Teehee. It's a little creepy. All right. Whatever works for you. <laughs> now, oh, and then we, and then, of course, we meet Mr. Big. Right. And at this point, we don't know that that's Yafit Koto. Except that his face looks like a burned face. <laughs> So it's obviously a mask. It's it's really it's bad, not, it's not good. unconvincing it's makeup. Not good. And any kind of spy would be able to say, see that that is a mask and not a real face. Yeah. 
And his dialogue is not terribly convincing. Uh, Now, to his credit, he very sensibly says, take this honky out and waste him. Yes. Which means just take him out back and shoot him in the head. Mm -hmm. Which, why he doesn't say that later in the movie about five times, I don't understand. Because he had crocodiles and sharks and shit to do. Just, you know, bada bing, just shoot him in the head. He has trap doors in his restaurants. You think this is a man that goes for simplicity? No. Again, he likes the style. Do you think he has a big three dimensional map that comes out of his floor? I think he stops there. All of his self made sense. (laughs) That's a a callback to our Goldfinger episode for those of you who didn't hear it. Okay, I don't even remember. Oh, some other CIA guy saves James Bond yes. from these so two guys that are going to shoot him in the head. One of the two black good guys right. in the film is right. this CIA agent who saves him from Yafet Kodos, um, who are bad at their jobs. That's when we... Yeah, after that we are off to, to San Monique. Yeah. And we arrive during this ritual presided over by Baron Samadhi. No. What we arrive at is a quote-unquote voodoo performance at what looks to be some sort of hotel resort. Oh, that's right. This is not a real one. This is a... It's like this meta performance of the bastardization of voodoo in a film that is in itself a bastardization (laughs) of voodoo. Well, so that that in itself is is a little clever. But you're doing the very thing that you are making fun of. Yeah, well, that's the problem, is that when you show the real voodoo right. performance, it, it is, is itself exactly this performative right. ridiculous thing. in front thing. of a white audience. Right. So, and again, we are introduced to someone who is too good for this film, <laughs> Mr. Jeffrey Holder. Jeffrey Holder. Who plays Samadhi, who is, I guess, I'm supposed to be like some sort of voodoo king or something. I don't know what yeah. the hell he's supposed mm-hmm. to be, but brilliant dancer and choreographer and yeah. actor. Um, and is, should, should just, no, is better than this. Ah, familiar to familiar to white viewers as Punjab in the uh, 1982 Annie. Should not be familiar <laughs> for that. Okay. So, yeah, so now Bond is in uh, San Monique. He checks into his hotel and is told that Mrs. Bond is already waiting for him. And uh, we, meet, we meet Mrs. Bond. Yes, we meet Rosie. Uh-huh. A... Young black woman, the only black woman with any lines in this film, if this I'm remembering correctly. Pretty close, if not. This is Gloria Hendry. Um, and she introduces herself as a CIA operative who is there to help Bond in his his sort of endeavor. But she is immediately painted as sort of the worst CIA. Yeah, she's pretty. She's pretty bumbling. She's jumpy and screaming at every. There's, a, there's thing. a snake. Bond had to kill a snake in his room, and she jumps when she sees the dead snake Very and. Runs into his arms. So I don't know if that's part of her sort of (laughs) thing or whatever. But yeah, so. Yeah, no, she's pretty inept. It is not an empowering depiction. Well, and so this was the thing. So at first I was a little bit impressed with her because even though she showed herself to be like a huge pussy about shit, um, (laughs) when Bond tried to run the moves on her, she was like, no, we got separate rooms, homie. That's okay. Yeah. And she went She rejects him. She She shuts him him down. But then she goes into her room and sees like a voodoo hat or something (laughs) on her bed and it's a bad omen or something. And now she's like, oh, daddy, homie. Yeah. And now they got to go. Don't leave me alone tonight. And that is, and it is like 30 seconds later. It's It's not. Immediately after she's like, please Mm -hmm. don't leave me alone. So I just, I was like, all right. She was, for whatever that is worth, she was the first black Bond girl. Mm -hmm. It wasn't worth a whole lot. Yeah, no, I didn't think you would think it was. But we find out that she 
is actually working for Kananga. She's a sort of double agent because, again, yeah. she's not very good at her job. Right. She's not only bad at her job, she's also bad at corrupt. And, double, yeah. yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And so Bond knows this, but sleeps with her again because he has no morals. And then calls her a deceitful, perverse woman, a liar and a cheat, and threatens to murder her yes. if she doesn't. With a gun to her head while they are still while lying are there still post-coital. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. So that's a, that's a, that's a whole bunch and he of even says, like, well, I wasn't going to confront you before we had sex. Right, so, yay progress? Uh, yeah, sure we, can, sure, we can Only call it that. Only to get up and call her deceitful and perverse <laughs> and threaten her with a gun? Uh, so she runs away from him. Yeah. Well, wait. So some, somewhere in there, we met the other. Just to close the loop on it, we met the other good black person. Oh yes. Um. So I guess yes. Quarrel uh, is Quarrel, his name. Yes. Who also works for the CIA. Yes. He right, drives. He boat. drives a boat. Yeah. Um, he, he just seems to be sort of an errand. Yeah. Man. He doesn't have a lot of lines no. or anything. He's just the boat chauffeur. Yeah. Okay, so that was it for the good black right, people in this movie. Wild. Everyone else is evil, evil and working for yes. Kananga. Yes. Okay. Um, so she runs away because she sees various voodoo totems <laughs> yeah. sort of all around them, so she knows she's being watched by Kananga. And one of the, uh, they're like coconut scarecrows. Yeah. Mm hmm. Weird. And like the pimp mobile, they're outfitted with darts. With they darts. Shoot, they shoot her with a dart, and she bleeds a lot more from the dart wound than I think you should, but whatever. <laughs> and then she dies. I guess it could have been a silenced bullet. I don't know exactly sure. what it was, but it, it shoots her. Which, again, is another one of those moments of why didn't they just shoot James Bond? Bond finds her body. He walks up to her body. He's obviously still within range of the coconut coconut scarecrow dart gun Mm -hmm. that killed her. Thing has cameras on it. Somebody back at the lair is watching Mm -hmm. and can just aim this and just shoot James Bond right there. They don't don't do that. They they kill the girl who was working for them, but they don't kill James Bond. To James Bond. You could have just killed James Bond, is my point. So then... This is where Quarrel comes back in. We find ourselves aloft in the sky with James Bond, (laughs) who is hang gliding. For some reason, I guess this is some sort of surveillance sort of thing. No, this is his. This is how he's getting onto the island undetected. Okay. Uh, This is instead of putting on scuba gear and a duck duck hat Mm -hmm. and going in that way, he's coming in from the air Mm -hmm. by hang gliding behind this boat that anyone within 100 miles could see him doing. Yeah. Yeah. It's not stealth hang gliding. It's just hang gliding. I don't really understand the thinking there. But all right. So he hang glides down into the island. And in fact, he has to hang glide in. And perfectly kick this guard standing mm-hmm. on the cliff in the face and mm-hmm. knock him over the cliff. So he walks into the priestess's throne room. <laughs> she has some weird room. Um, and he's like playing with her tarot cards. And she walks in and is like, don't play with those because you are disrespecting the shit. Though her very existence and this very plot <laughs> is disrespecting the shit. And he tells her to pull a card. And she pulls the lover's card, which is the same card that she had seen earlier when she yeah. first met Bond. And she feels that it means that they're supposed to be together. But she... <sighs> and this is where the feminism comes in. <laughs> oh, I, she, I wondered when the feminism was going to come in. Apparently, her powers are dependent upon her remaining a virgin. Yeah. Once she has sex, she loses her powers to sort of see the future or whatever the fuck. Um, of course... Bond doesn't give a shit about that, and she is so attracted to him that she's willing to give up her powers of sight to sleep with fucking James Bond. So she does, and immediately after, it's gone. 
she's lost all her power. Now, it's important to note here that Bond rigged the tarot deck, too. Yes, he it was, stacked it, him with all he, he had come cards. from New York with a deck of yeah. all lover tarot cards. Yes. Yeah. So he tricked her Which is, into he, he basically giving up her virginity magically roofied her and her powers yeah. mm-hmm. because he wants to sleep with her. Yeah. So there's that. <laughs> so she lost the ability to see the future mm-hmm. to sleep with James Bond. Yeah. And she may not know, we all know Bond is not gonna stick around. No, that's not this is not gonna be, be a long term. No. You did not give yeah. up your powers in exchange for, for the great love of your life yeah. and security and a marriage yeah. and children. No, you just, yeah. And if she still had her sight, she could see down the road that they weren't going to be together. No. Where the fuck are we? All right. So <laughs> the big secret that people, that we hadn't, we didn't know yet was that the his whole operation is about the poppy fields and heroin. So then we're back in New Orleans. Well, no, wait, you're, you're skipping. We have, we have a helicopter shooting at them. Didn't I mention that? No, I don't think so. I said helicopter shot. We get the poppy fields. Oh, they, I mean, yes, they happen to be shooting at Bond during the helicopter shot. It doesn't matter. <laughs> They're they shooting. Okay. Hit him. Okay, but he, here's here's my thing here. Okay. They are sort of concealed in these poppy fields. Right. This helicopter is strafing them with machine gun fire, yes. trying to kill them. Mm-hmm. And then about two minutes later, we hear Kananga say, don't hurt the girl. Right. Because he doesn't know yet that she's given up her virginity to James. Well, that's not the point. The helicopter was just machine gunning them. Oh, I see. And yet, two minutes later, it's like, oh, don't, by the way, don't hurt the girl. That would have been more useful instruction before the helicopter opened fire with its dual machine guns. Yeah, well, then we get a bus chase. They steal a bus. (laughs) (laughs) But it's not, this is going to come up again, it's not an exciting chase. It is not an exciting chase. And again, I would say that for a man who has literally everyone at his disposal, everyone working on his behalf, they have found it very, very hard to even lay a finger on James Bond. (laughs) Do not understand. The, and this is, it, in all the chases that happen in this movie, the people chasing James Bond crash and wipe out mm-hmm. for no yeah. fucking reason. Well, in this one in particular, he's driving a raggedy-ass double-decker bus, which is not particularly nimble in traffic. No. And I don't imagine can go very fast. And he's outpacing motorcycles <laughs> and cars. And at one point, he just, like, sort of stops and swerves into a puddle. And five vehicles behind him all wipe out in different ways. Mm -hmm. But he just takes them all out all at once. I don't know who did the chase choreography in this movie, but it's awful. Yeah, it's pretty bad. There's no cause and effect of any kind for why all these people wipe out. All right, anyway. So, yeah, then they're heading back to New York to get back on Coral's boat. Solitaire, it should be mentioned, is super into sex at this point. She's like... Well, I mean, you know, as we all know, mm-hmm. once a lady has it, yeah, can't, she's, she can't get can't enough. Can't get enough. So, yeah, because that first time is always so awesome. So, yes, they head to New Orleans to sort of close the loop on everything that's been going on because they know that Kananga has operations in New Orleans as well. And they... Get in a cab, and guess who the cab driver is? <laughs> that same cab driver in New York who said for $20 I'll take you to a Klan cookout. Yeah, I just can't get a, like, it's pretty, who do we trust to drive the cab? Uh, well, he does, he's a, he's a, he's a great shtick. I mean, it's a perfect <laughs> cab driver shtick. 
and his cab this time comes equipped with what I'm assuming is bulletproof glass that he immediately raises the partition so that Bond can't get to him. And this is when we get the second funeral parade. So the black CI agent has been in New Orleans and has been scoping out. Wait, you were you were just jumping ahead. Am I? Because nothing that means nothing mattered. You were missing the entire thrilling flight school segment. Because I was stupid. (laughs) I skipped stupid shit. They're at this little airport with a flying school. I don't even remember how they get out of the cab, but they get out of the cab and they... Because they get there there with Kananga's people, so he was... The cab driver was dropping them off to go, and and they were going to take Bond up in the plane and then drop him from... Remember that? Oh, that's that's right. Okay, that's right. Again, instead of just shooting him in the head, we're going to take him up in the plane and drop him out of the plane. Call back to Point Break, which was actually a skydiving trip. It was very nice. So he he gets in the plane, and you think something... Okay, so he's going to take off in the plane, and something exciting is going to happen. He doesn't take off in the plane. He just drives the fucking plane around the parking lot. And again, you talk about something that is not nimble. He is being chased in this plane. He's in a plane on the ground, mm-hmm. taxiing around in circles. And again, somehow everybody who's chasing him wipes out and crashes and dies while he's doing this. Well, he's also not driving the plane. Some old lady is driving the plane because she was waiting to take her flying lessons. <laughs> well, no, she's in the plane. Oh, but he's driving? he's oh, driving the okay. plane. I'm I'm pretty sure. Okay. Uh, yeah, it's it's a really bad and it's another just boring sequence yeah, it's that it's not good action. No. Okay. Yes. Now go to your funeral procession. Okay. So yeah, it's another funeral parade. This time it's the black CIA agent standing, <laughs> right. saying, one of, the two, one of the two people. One of the two right. black, good black people. Um, so he gets shanked and mm-hmm. casketed, I guess we're going to call it, uh, <laughs> and <laughs> isn't really thought much about afterwards. No one seems to be concerned that this agent has Yeah, I'm not sure up. anyone notices that no, he's gone. So that was he was actually obviously valuable to this team. And so Felix and Bond find themselves in Kananga's bar in yeah. New Orleans, also called Filet of Soul. Also tricked out with crap door and all this other shit. So, Bond thought he was smart and said no, don't take the booth by the door because I was in there once before and that ended up being a trap door so I wanted the table next to the stage at the front and apparently every fucking table in that restaurant <laughs> is a trap door table and it's like no big deal, we can t- put you there. Uh, and so, Felix gets Must be good for like, you don't need a bouncer right. you can just get rid of the drunks down, just drop them down. No big deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Felix gets what I'm assuming to be a fake phone call so he leaves the table and then the table sort of drops down into the floor with Bond and he is face to face with Mr. Big quote unquote Mr. Big Mm -hmm. in the bad face mask Um, and so they sort of drop him to the chair Solitaire is there Mr. Big is there Teehee is there And Mr. Big keeps asking him if he slept if with he Solitaire, slept with which should have been a clue to James Bond. But it wasn't. But, uh, it, but it wasn't. And Bond is saying, I'm not going to tell that to anyone except Kananga. <laughs> and big reveal. <gasps> Mr. Big rips off his face. I didn't see that coming. And reveals himself to be Kananga. I didn't see that coming at all. Yeah, you did. Because that's obviously what it was. That was a, like, Scooby-Doo level (laughs) reveal right there. When the one suspect turns out to be behind the mask. 
So Bond still won't answer the question of whether or not he popped Solitaire's cherry. And uh, obviously Solitaire's not going to answer that question. So they come up with a little game. They take Bond's watch and Kananga reads the serial number off okay, the watch. Yeah, and it's a really odd choice. That's a really weird test. Yeah. Because when she had her powers, we saw her say, well, you know, it's not it always clear. Not, we yeah. don't know. Now he's asking her, is the serial number on this watch 3579844? True or false? She says yes. <laughs> and so you think, because he gives the watch back to Bond, he's like, okay. Yeah, he gives he gives the watch back to Bond, which is a mistake so think, right oh, there. Oh, she got it right. And, but no, no, that was the wrong answer. Yeah, turns out. So Teehee, I think, knocks him out. Yep. And then fucking Whisper comes in and, like, <laughs> struggles carrying his body out. It's just... I'm, I'm going to take him to the elevator for her. What? I'm gonna take him to the alligator fur. What? What? I, I just, I just grabbed this guy and take him to the alligator fur. Text me. I can't. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> it's so ridiculous. <laughs> And, and then we're at the alligator farm. Which, I this the, the scene at the crocodile, I guess it's a crocodile farm more than an alligator like farm, yeah, yeah. Uh, is really the only thing I remembered from this movie from mm-hmm. my childhood. Mm-hmm. And a little background here. Apparently, the, the guy who owned this actual crocodile farm, his name was Kananga. And he is credited as a stunt, a stunt coordinator. And they named, they actually, and the, the villain had some different name. And mm-hmm. they just liked the name Kananga. So they took his name to give it to the to Yafit Koto's character. Mm-hmm. But yeah, this is another classic case of su- yeah, supervillain thinking. Yeah. Are, are we going to take him to the farm and shoot him and feed his body to the alligators? That would make sense. Yeah. That's a good body disposal method. Yeah. It's like Deadwood when they feed people to pigs. You just feed them to the crocodiles and then there's no body. Yeah. Brilliant plan. Yeah. It's not the plan. It's not the plan. The plan is to lure him out on this rock in the middle of the swamp. Yes. And leave him there, surrounded by alligators. So the, and then here we have the part that is essential for plotting purposes, but makes even less sense. Like, okay, you've got some fetish. You want to feed the guy to the alligators instead of shooting him in the head. Mm-hmm. Nobody st- sticks around to watch. No, because we know that the crocodiles slash alligators will. Nobody's like, hey, this will be fun to watch. I'm just going to sit here on the shore and watch and see how long it takes the alligators to eat him. In Goldfinger, we're going to put him on the table. We're going to point the laser at him. Anyone going to stick around and watch the laser cut him in half? No, that's we got other shit to do. We wasted, well, not wasted. I will say, (laughs) depends on your priorities. (laughs) We used a lot of time at the top where Teehee is walking James out onto the pier Mm -hmm. and is sort of throwing raw meat at the alligator slash crocodiles. And, but telling him, you know, getting really into the science of the difference between the animals and sort of how they eat. <laughs> you can tell by the rounded nose so that's an important. alligator, not a crocodile. Um, so you get a little, like, Planet Earth episode in the middle of this movie, which is very nice and very helpful. Um, but when you spend all your time sort of doing that, then mm-hmm. you don't necessarily have time to sit and make sure the hang around and watch alligators the, actually eat yeah. the prey. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, they're they're bad at their jobs. Everybody's yeah. bad at their job. Yeah. So Bond has to get out of this pickle. Mm-hmm. Tries to use the magnet watch to summon a boat that's conveniently nearby. Right, that doesn't quite work. No, the boat is tied up. Yeah. That so that doesn't work because this super powerful magnet can't break that rope that's tied in the no. boat. I guess it's not that powerful. No. Uh, so what does he do? 
He uh, hopscotches on some crocodiles. <laughs> he runs across the backs of about five crocodiles mm-hmm. to get to the shore. Yep. And you are not impressed with this stunt. Because I'm super sure it's not possible. Well, no, it is possible. This, again, no CGI. This was a stunt guy, and I believe it was Ross Kananga <laughs> doing the stunt, running across the backs of these crocodiles. And he has said about this, it took six takes to complete the scene. <laughs> Where he doubles for Roger Moore. (laughs) Something like that is almost impossible to do, he said. And again, this is the guy that owns the crocodile farm. So I had to do it six times before I got it right. I fell five times. The film company kept sending to London for more clothes. The crocs were chewing off everything when I hit the water, including shoes. I received 193 stitches on my leg and face. I thought you were going to say $193. I was like, oh, hell no. No, uh, no. he received 193 stitches from crocodiles chewing on him every time he fell into the water trying to complete this stunt. That scene was not worth (laughs) it. All of that. It really wasn't. It really wasn't. I think it was. I think it was. No sacrifice is too great for art. This is not art, but okay. And then here we have next about a, I don't know, 45-minute sequence about which you and I are in complete agreement. Well, first we have, so Bond is free, and then he torches Kananga. Oh, yeah, which, uh, yeah. Lab. Yeah, sure. Because that shit was about to ship out, and now it's not, so that's a bummer. But, yeah. So then we have the longest, most boring boat chase ever it's it's insane and i don't know if it had just it like i can't off the top of my head think of another boat chase scene (laughs) and i have a feeling that's what was going on here it's like okay every film does car chases and we're gonna do boat chases so let's really commit to this and just do the biggest boat chase anyone has ever filmed on screen it's so boring boring. i don't even think there was backing track to it i think we were just listening to engines for like 45 minutes but yes, it's Bond being chased by Kananga's henchmen in various configurations, speeding through water, and then skidding over land. Speeding through okay, water. Yeah, skidding over a lot of land, land, which is not how boats work. <laughs> Most of these had outboard motors that would have snapped off the second they hit land. Like, no. Okay, but sure, whatever. It was a lot of different set pieces. You know, one of, a couple of Kananga's henchmen skidded off into land and landed in this very nice white family. <laughs> I, I did sort of like that one, uh, actually. It was That's just, a little clever. That they, was, they skid over and land in the pool, and then they can't get out of the pool. There was a lot going on. <laughs> um, and then we have what I guess is what British people think Southern sheriffs are like. Um, yeah. Well, these are more American productions than you think they are. That's true. The screenwriter is American. The director but is they British. The books. I mean, I don't know. If I don't know. I don't know if this character is in the book. I have no idea. This is Sheriff J. W. Pepper, who is played by some white guy, Clifton James, I believe his name is. Yeah. He is <laughs> just an outsized caricature of the sort of racist Southern sheriff. Like, yeah. he got a big old belt of chew in his craw, mm. and it's just like, you you you're going pretty fast there, boy. And it was just, <laughs> it's like, he was, uh, what's the pig? What? Biddy, biddy, biddy. Porky pig. <laughs> Porky pig. Wait, um, no, I'm sorry. I'm not sure that's what you mean. Can you do that again? <laughs> I'm not doing it. Can you can you can you give me the impersonation again? I'm not I sure. I will not be doing that again. <laughs> Come on, that was pretty good. Like Porky Pig, if he were racist and power hungry, <laughs> with a bad tobacco habit, so he has pulled one of Kananga's 
henchmen to the side, pulls them over on, uh, in his car, and he does the whole, like, you know, put your hands on the hood, boy, and spread your legs, boy, and, you know, sort of thing. And it's just obnoxious. And was it, I think that was Teehee, right? No, that wasn't Teehee. It wasn't Teehee. That was a different one. Yeah. Okay. But you, you had to sort of hope that the guy was going to kill the racist sheriff there at that point. But he doesn't. But he doesn't. No, but he does get away, and he doesn't die, which I, I was worried that they were going to shoot the black man. Yeah. The movie would have became a whole other something. But so he gets away, and Sheriff... What's his name? J.W. Pepper. J.W. Pepper is very pissed off and he wants to go chase these boys on their boats. And so he gets in the car and is like chasing after them. And he says, my brother Billy Bob got a fast boat that can catch them. And it's, and this isn't even me acting out a hate crime against Southern people. No, this you didn't is, add the Billy no, Bob. This the Billy Bob is in there. How he sounds, this is what he is saying. Like, they were very intentional about what kind of caricature they were creating with this dude. And so his brother Billy Bob got a fast boat. And they thought he was hysterically funny because yes. he gets a lot of screen a lot time. Of fucking screen time. And he's just comic relief. Like he's not meant to be taken seriously. Yeah. And it's 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 a problem. <laughs> so the dude the one the black dude that the sheriff had pulled over ends up being the one that steals Billy Bob's boat and takes Billy Bob's boat to chase You what you paid way more attention to this than I did, because I don't have these details. <laughs> he chases Bond. And I don't even remember how the fucking boat thing ends. Oh, so... Oh, wait. Let me check my notes. My notes say, boat chase goes on fucking forever. Yeah. So that's what happens. But at some point, James Bond and the dude (laughs) in Billy Bob's boat are one-on-one. Yeah. And then uh, James, like, douses Billy Bob's boat with gas. And then forces it somehow to crash into something. It's really... Again, just the chase choreography is terrible in this movie. You can't tell why anything happens. It's the most boring. I imagine it cost a lot to do. I'm sure it cost a fortune. And it was so boring and so long. Yeah. So yeah, that was it. And then J.W. Pepper tries to arrest James Bond. And again, Felix just shows up and like like, just takes care of that. Like, okay, you know. I don't actually do anything, but I come and I pay James Bond's bills. Yeah. Basically, (laughs) the way that we have a what? $600 $600 million bill for paying for settlements because of police brutality. They, the, the CIA, we're just paying for <laughs> for James Bond's bullshit. So. I, don't, I don't know why you had to go there. That it's was just, just... It's it's topical. <laughs> <laughs> we need to talk about it <laughs> more. <laughs> so. All right. And then what? We're back to San Monique again, yes. I think, for the final time, right? Yeah. So, what's her name? Solitaire has been taken to San Monique, and she is now going to be sacrificed in the quote-unquote voodoo. Well, she ceremony. has no other purpose at this point, because yeah. she's lost her she's powers, tainted. and she's lost her virginity. She's and tainted. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is... You, you got some more you want to say about that? Well, no, I mean, because I like, I feel like if it had been a if it had been a better film, there could be some interesting things to be said about, like, the fetishization of white women by black men uh-huh. and their very worth comes from the fact that they are desired and wanted by white men. Right. Uh, and how they sort of symbolize purity right. and, and But yes. now that she's slept with a white man, she is now tainted goods and mm-hmm. is no longer of use to the black man. So there, there could be some interesting conversations had, but this movie is not. <laughs> but there are. Um, so, 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 right. So we're back at the voodoo ceremony and Bond is there sort of just keeping an eye out and, and, and watching what's happening. The plan is that, what's his name? The other good black person. The uh, Quarrel. Quarrel is going to plant bombs in the poppy fields to explode them. Yeah, and Felix? I think Felix is there too, isn't Felix he? Felix is also there. Okay. I don't think he's actually doing anything. Okay. And then uh, we are sort of watching the voodoo ceremony 
through Bond's eyes. So they, you know, tie Solitaire to a pole, and then they sort of tease her with a snake. And yeah. Then there's a weird moment. Yeah. Where priestesses sort of go over to this grave, and they place a hat at the grave. Yeah. And then we see a man rise up. Which is pretty, pretty cool. That's it's actually... a cool-ass trick. Yeah. You put the hat on the ground, and then the it, figure rises right, up wearing the hat. If, you know, he's been summoned from the grave, and Bond shoots it and it it seems to have real eyeballs but when he shoots it it breaks apart as if he shot clay or something or a statue statue. or something yes i'm i'm confused about what happened there voodoo except it's not and then (laughs) another figure comes out of the grave out of that same grave and that is that's the real baron right somebody somebody and he and bond sort of tussle and fight and then bond pushes him into a casket full of snakes <laughs> and Which, he's bitten yeah many times yeah mm-hmm. and we assume dies right sort of anticlimactic actually it'll, you, you it'll expected a big fight there and bond just pushes him into the coffin full of snakes right and, mm-hmm. but so bond takes solitaire and goes to that grave that baron somebody had risen from and they realize that it's just a trap door yeah um, and so they descend down into Kananga's sort of subterranean lair <laughs> and he says the thing that every fucking bond villain says apparently which is i've been waiting for you mr bond like, well if you had shot him like eight hours ago we really wouldn't have to have this conversation but okay but surely you're gonna shoot him now nope we're gonna talk some more um about random shit and then we're gonna find another just unnecessarily complicated way of killing him so Kananga ties Bond. Well, for, oh, there's yeah, we got so we, we got Bond, some Chekhov action. We right, need to Bond work has a gun here. that yeah. is apparently like a pressurized air gun. Or yeah, something right. Like it's like a shark gun. He right. says, right? I don't. It shoots pressurized gas pellets. Sure. We have never seen this gun no, before. Never heard of it. He has never used this no. gun. This is the first we know about this. We don't know why anyone would really have this gun anyway. And it's just to introduce the fact that Kananga takes one gas pellet out of the gun and after sa- shooting. Oh, that's right. The yes. The sofa that Whisper was sitting on and it somehow like explodes into a balloon of the, like basically I thought he died because it like it smothers him <laughs> and then he just sort of falls out of it and no, I, I just like he says what the fuck man why did you show my couch <laughs> I assume that's what he said. He was behind the couch. I couldn't hear him. Couldn't hear him. Have no idea what he felt about that situation. Dude, that sucks. (laughs) What the fuck? So this gun that works in a weird way, the gun doesn't work. We flag that because that's obviously yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Kananga ties Solitaire and Bond to some sort of like crane, crane thing, contraption yeah. thing made of metal that will also be important. Uh huh. Oh sure. And he slices a couple of scratches on Bond's arm to summon the sharks, so that he bleeds very fucking slowly into the water, so that he can summon the sharks yeah. to come and get him again. Very probably, just unnecessary. Probably could have just stabbed him right there, probably huh? With that knife, he had the knife. He was, he was right there. The just kind of like cut his throat. That would have worked. Sharks. Mm-hmm. Not, you know, yeah. Many ways. No, like we're not going to do that. So he's dangling, and Kananga is like, okay, now's my time to turn my back on this situation <laughs> and like, really focus on what's going on in this desk over here. <laughs> um, and so we, the audience, see Bond fidgeting with his watch. Mm-hmm. So he turns. Which, again, no one is taken away from him. No, Nobody is just, just going yeah. to roll with it. Yeah. So he sees the pressurized air bullet sitting on the desk. Yeah. And he's like, oh, I can summon it with my <laughs> magnet watch. And despite all kinds of metal. 
And again, I think the table was metal. It was. And they are strapped to a metal crane. So theoretically, when he turned on the watch, he should have just, his wrist should have just slammed into the fucking crane and just been trapped there because of, uh, that's how magnets work. Like, all sorts of shit should have been flying across the room, which might have made Kananga yeah. turn around and be like, hey, what's happening? Over? What's happening over here at this death trap He's I just set up and then walked away from? He focused the magnet <laughs> so that it pulls the bullet to him and he sort of just sort of pops it in his mouth to hold. Yeah. And then... Something happens that we didn't know, which is that the a watch second function is also of the a watch buzzsaw <laughs> that he can turn on and you know uh, saw through the ropes that tied him and solitaire. Yeah. So he frees himself again. Kanenga's focused on something. I don't know what the fuck. I don't know what Kanenga's doing. But he's missing all of this. But Whisper's there, mm. and Whisper's yeah. like, "Look out!" <laughs> what? Look out. Nope. The guy's, the guy's getting out of his, he's guy's getting out of his he's, trap. He's, 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 he's out. Turn around. He's, he's, he's out. <laughs> Just, no. Like, clap your hands or something, something. whisper. You Wave know? something. Yeah. Just, no one hears you. Stomp. Do something. So anyway, Bond knocks out Whisper. Mm-hmm. And then he and Kananga wrestle for a little bit. Yeah. And fall together into the shark-filled waters. Uh-huh. I don't even want to talk about this. <laughs> I, I, think, I think you have to. I think this is Yafit Kodo's finest moment, probably in all of his long and respectable career. So Bond takes the pressurized air bullet <laughs> and pops it in Kananga's mouth. Kananga proceeds to blow up to the size of a Macy's fucking <laughs> parade balloon. And then just explodes. rise up out of the water to the ceiling where he explodes, he explodes <laughs> into like shreds of person. I just, there is no dignity. Like in that. happens. There is no logic in that. There is just, I do not understand. <laughs> and somehow racist because his face gets this really balloon sort of like Dizzy Gillespie sort of bug eyed <laughs> face thing happening. And yeah. so it's just, yeah. Why? Why did we have to? Again, a man that was brilliant enough to orchestrate all the shit that was going on in this film. Mm-hmm. And he got to go out like that? Yeah, because as Bond says, he had an inflated opinion of himself. Mm-hmm. It's a terrible film. <laughs> and that should be the end of the movie. But it is not. No. So he and Solitaire take the train. I don't know where the fuck they're going. I don't know. Um, Felix is like, what are you going to do on the train for 16 hours? And they're like, <laughs> We're going to fuck. No, you're not. And so they're on the train, and Solitaire's getting ready for bed, and she's in the bed. And guess who ain't dead? Teehee ain't dead. <laughs> Which, to be fair, we I don't think we ever saw Teehee die or anything. I don't remember when the yeah. last time we saw him was. At the explosion after the crocodiles. <laughs> okay. So he flips the bed so that Solitaire is sort of trapped in between the bed and the wall. Now, I'm not clear why Teehee is, I mean, his boss is dead. Right, he's, the heroin operation I don't know done. exactly I mean, what he's, like, is, it, is he just revenge. pissed off? I mean, sure. Why not? Sure. Okay. So he and Bond tussle with each other in the the train car. And then Bond uses some strategically placed tweezers (laughs) 
to clip the sword. Oh, we haven't mentioned. Teehee has no right arm. He has. I think, a me- I, think I said he had a mechanical okay, arm. He has, so his so he clips the like wiring the, like, hydraulic cables right. in his arm, and so the arm becomes totally useless, and Teehee is just sort of trapped there. And then he shoves him out the train window. And yeah. that's the end of Teehee. Um, and then he frees Solitaire, who apparently didn't know anything about what just happened. No, because she was just yeah. like unceremoniously shoved into the. She's wall. like that wasn't a funny joke. Bond <laughs> was like, uh-huh. um. <laughs> And then we pan out to the out the sort of exterior of the train, and we see that Samadhi is sitting on the front of the train, <laughs> riding the train like that fucking thing from Twilight Zone on the wing of the plane. Like it's just I don't, I don't understand why he's there. I don't understand what the plan is. And he's just sort of laughing, and then it fades to like a skull head, I think. Or something. Like it's, yeah, mm-hmm. it ends on Ooh, Voodoo is evil, um, and that's or Voodoo never dies. <laughs> So that's that's that shitty movie. I believe there were some plans to bring Baron Samadhi back as a, as a villain in later mm-hmm. Bond movies, and that didn't happen. One hopes because Jeffrey Holder did not want to do I would that hope so. again. I would really hope so. <laughs> okay, so yeah, this movie is not good. No. no, I will freely admit that. And even the stuff that I remembered from my childhood as being cool, like the crocodile scene, it's not that cool. was not that cool. It's really not no. that well done. It's not that well shot. As action sequences go, everything is just kind of limp yeah. and unimpressive. There's just not much tension, and I feel like... No, Bond there really the isn't. Tension, yeah. Because we all know he's going to get away because he's Bond. But you have to be able to create the tension and, and make the, the set pieces exciting, otherwise it's just like you're watching nothing. And I do think Moore's performance doesn't help that because no. he is just so blasé yeah. about everything. Connery did at least show a little fear or a little emotion mm-hmm. or a little like, how am I going to get out of this? Moore just looks like he's had five cocktails and he's at a party and he just assumes everything's going to be okay and it is. Yeah. So, yeah, this is not a great movie, though obviously it is saying important, important things. It is absolutely not saying anything important. (laughs) At best, it will help, it will sort of instigate important conversations about how it failed to be important, but that's that's about it. It is destructive towards a number of communities, (laughs) so no. Because we still to this day have fucked up ideas about voodoo and opium. Mm-hmm. We, we as a culture, as a pop culture, in, in pop culture have not gotten past that. We do not deal with those cultures. In yeah, well, we still have fucked up ideas about Harlem, too. Ideas. So it's not a surprise. It's not. No. Like, no. Okay, so you're, uh, you're glad you watched it? I am not. Not at all. And where are we now vis-a-vis the other 22 James Bond movies? I will not be watching any more James Bond. I don't know how many other ways I can possibly say colonialism, racism, sexism. So I don't think that there's anything else to say. I I think there are more ways. No, I will not be doing it. If we must end the podcast here, then it must end. (laughs) But I will not do any more Bond movies. I I, I honestly, like I said before, I honestly am not, I'm not feeling the need to to introduce you to any more James Bond movies. Mm -hmm. I think you've, you've got a grasp on what they're about now. Um, As far as, you know, getting the cultural references and, understanding the place of this franchise in movie history I, I i think i think you're there mm-hmm. where you need to be mm-hmm. let's move on to something else next time wonderful <laughs> that's our show we want to thank you for listening and apologize again for the crappy sound quality this episode 
If this was your first time listening to The Unenthusiastic Critic, please know that our episodes usually sound at least 43% less crappy than this. And either way, we hope you'll join us again next week when we celebrate the arrival of spring and baseball season by sitting down for Nakia's first viewing of 1984's The Natural, starring Robert Redford. In the meantime, you can find us on the web at unaffiliatedcritic.com, where you can download earlier episodes, leave us a comment, or make a donation to support the podcast. As always, we encourage you to suggest a film Nakia desperately needs to see to make her life complete. Until next time, remember, true love means conning your partner into watching movies they really, really don't want to watch. This is the only part of the film that I like, so I'm going to mention it. The alligator farm. Jeffrey Holder <laughs> comes into the room wearing a fucking fabulous black, looks to be velvet, with a black king, with a black and white polka dot shirt and ascot, See, I, I, and a black velvet hat. I don't have Clean as shit. I don't have all this in my notes. I didn't really notice his outfit. Stunning. He looks amazing. This is the difference between you and me. And then they like slap solitaire around. I don't care so much about that. But <laughs> Jeffrey Holder is a vision in that scene, and it's the only good thing that I took away from this film. <laughs> now you can get to your fucking alligators.